0: From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you the FCA's major overhaul of overdrafts, the finale for Fin, and banking and Big Macs in Russia. All this and more on today's show. Welcome to episode 331 of Fintech Insider. We are coming to you live from the 11FS HQ in London town, which is not very sunny right now. Uh, I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my colleague and jobs-to-be-done expert, Brandon Chung how's it going Brandon doing very well Simon what's been going on a lot's been going on.
1: Um, procurement land's happening. Um, that's always fun.
0: You are living in procurement land right now. It's a, it's a great place to be, I hear. Um, Dreamy. Ain't no party like a procurement party. Uh, and we're not alone. We are joined by some incredible guests. Uh, making their new show debut, we have Laurel Quinn, who is the CEO of Sustainably. How are you doing, Laurel?
2: Great. How are you?
0: Really well, thank you. Better than the weather in London, that's Yes,
2: true. it's quite bad. I'm sad to say. It, it's
0: atrocious. This is June, apparently.
2: Yeah, this is the summer
0: Yeah. Although by the time this comes out on Monday, apparently it clears up. So, perfect. You remember when it was crappy on Thursday? (laughs) Um, And of course, Scott Liddell, who is head of channel and digital at CYBG. How are you doing, Scott? Very well indeed. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Let's get started. And the first story... We are the news, Brandon. Um, so, story, um, we've covered our own blog post, because why not? Um, 11FS.com, but this was picked up by by a number of places. Um, building the banking platform of the future with 11FS Foundry. Uh, DNB, who is Norway, Norway's... Uh, also Norway, but Norway, uh, largest financial services group will be extending its investment uh, into 11FS Foundry and is committed to building new services on the platform with an initial focus on loans. Uh, 11FS Foundry offers a modular, ledger-first set of components that deliver secure, digitally native propositions to scale and at speed. Uh, and the quote here is of course from the uh, group executive for new business at DNB Rasmus who says our development teams have actually worked really closely together in the past 6 months and based on a successful proof of concept we're now ready to move to the next milestone uh, and the beginning of the stage of implementation implementing foundry in dnb systems will give us valuable insight and better understanding how we can use this technology going forward even more uh all right brandon uh you do you have any questions on this one
1: yeah. Um, well, I think what's been really interesting is we did this through a partnership and not a pure investment play with a lot of VC backing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess my, my question for you, Simon, is how has that influenced the way that the product has been developed in terms of the roadmap, in terms of the collaboration and, and the dynamics with DNB? I
0: think Rasmus really, really called this. Um, so, you know, big shout out to uh, Martin and Trigva at uh, DNB, who you know, leader, you and Arthur, Tom J, the guys will tell you that we we they're not kidding when they say we work together. I mean, this is a daily stand-up. This is being in the office for weeks on end, um, literally working in the same place, sitting next to each other, looking at lines of code, looking at products, dealing with sprints and backlogs and and actually working hand in hand together, which you know it's kind of breaks the traditional like a lot of people talk a good game about partnerships, but we're mutually invested for the same outcome. So that, I think that's been really different um, that, you know, they're investing in a platform that could become their future, hopefully. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a little bit different. And also starting with a proof of concept and then getting beyond it is, is absolutely huge for us. It's that sort of small and iterative approach that
1: we, we always preach about, right?
0: So um, I don't know if um, there's any observations, Laurel, Scott, that, that you have on this from the outside looking in, you know, having worked in partnering with uh, banks and, and so on.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting, the partnership model, and I'm off to level 39 to (laughs) try and do exactly some of these types of deals. But I think this is going to be more more and more common. We'll see fintechs collaborating with with bigger banks, fintechs collaborating with each other, companies in different sectors collaborating on different projects and actually making those investments. So um, yesterday, as part of London Tech Week, I was at the Innovation Festival, which was focused on large businesses partnering with startups. And it's really key kind of the process, how to shorten that process, who, why it's in everyone's best interest to make this happen, because you know we're going to have amazing products and services at the end of it that we couldn't create on our own. So I think it's really critical and a really good thing.
3: The thing I love about the story is it, it kind of reinforces something that I'm very, very keen on, and, and that's really selling the power of a platform.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, the you know something we do internally all the time. You know, we we have a platform akin to Foundry in a way, in terms of the way, the way that we deliver digital in the bank is is very much the same thing. It's based on a set of underlying microservices and a very much a platform view. And I think all these stories help reinforce why that's really the future of, of how we need to do these things, right? Because, you know, what most companies, but certainly all financial services companies are looking for is differentiation. Differentiation comes with innovation, but innovation at scale and at pace in a banking environment is quite difficult because you, you, there, there are risky things in play. And, and I, when your services are tightly coupled, it is
0: extremely hard to to move quickly because you don't know, if I push down on one service over here, will these 15 other ones in the corner, would there be like a domino effect of doing no, change? But
3: the, the, the design pattern is always to try and keep them as separate as you can, right? Yeah. So, what what you're trying to get to is is when you have a service that does a payment or a transfer, you you, when you turn up to build whatever channel apps you want on top of it. You can rely on that doing that thing, which means that you can move at pace in the upper layers of the architecture knowing that the lower ones are going to do what they expect to do. This is uh, McKinsey for a long time have been talking about Lego bricks vastly
0: oversimplifying this concept but Mm -hmm. actually true microservices architectures have a number of benefits like avoiding supplier lock-in and not being reliant on vendor roadmaps. If, If you are truly partnering and you understand how all of the microservices are being architected right down to the general ledger and all the way back up the stack then you're
1: in a completely different position to to you know,
0: be in control of your own destiny.
1: Yeah, and I think we uh, we, had a, we had an interview with one of the chief product officers of a large bank um, a, a week ago. And he said that when you work for a large organization that has any amount of history or legacy technology, you feel naturally constrained. It's, I want to do this, but to do this, I need to you know go back to other system That might be 10 years old in the mainframe. And when you get a budget, um, a lot of that budget goes to... Um, making compromises, which is um, uh, because of the system, I can deliver to exactly what the customer wants, and therefore the compromise I make is on the customer experience. Whereas when you have a platform like the one you described, Scott, uh, it's about compromising, oh, do I want to put this feature out now or later, versus compromising on do I deliver the right experience for the customer at the end of the day? It's a better
3: place to be. Absolutely. You know, we've we've been able over the last couple of years to really transform all of our channels at pace simply because of the existence of the platform. That, that's the thing that's enabled it to happen. And, you know, and that, that's clearly what, what were you getting to with, with this kind of deal, right? Because right. people will see that when they, they implement the platform, what they'll be able to do on top of that will be much, much quicker. They'll be able to do a lot more features at pace, but also the, the quality of the output will be much, much higher. Right, you don't have to go into that kind of scary phase. Software generally doesn't like being new. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and what, what you get is that the new bit is only at the screen, really. You know? And you, you get the benefit of, of the aged platform that you can rely on. And, and that, that's really important when you're trying to really, really move these things quickly. What's
0: interesting, though, is, is increasingly I've seen uh, a lot of headlines about moving to the cloud, migrating existing technology stacks into the cloud, which is sort of taking the, the shopping basket I had from the 1950s and putting it online, rather than having today's shopping basket online and buying different types of products and services. And increasingly... Uh, we have seen, I think, that the cloud vendors tooling um, you know, uh, using containerization, using things like Kafka for uh, orchestration. All of this tooling has matured in the last sort of five years, where five years ago, cloud was a cost save. Instead of virtualizing, I stuck stuff in the cloud. Now there's actually a new way of architecting things that allow you to have 30 versions of your mainframe running, 30 versions of your payment system running, hundreds of versions, so that you've got uh, a massive failover in in a way that you wouldn't, and massively more resilience in a way that that would have been harder to do in the past. So it's it's just a different model, but um, one that maybe we'll see a trend. Here's hoping. All right, next story. Um, the FCA have done a major shakeup of overdrafts. Uh, this comes from the BBC News, and uh, bank and banks and building societies will no longer be allowed to charge fixed daily or monthly fees for overdraft. In addition, there will be uh, no longer be higher fees for unplanned overdrafts rather than arranged ones. The Financial Conduct Authority said the new rules would start by April 2020, and it's calling this the biggest rule overhaul for a generation. So it will mean no difference between uh, arranged and unarranged prices, but no cap on cost either. Um, an end to monthly or daily fees... A requirement for banks to advertise their overdraft rate is a single interest rate annually, or APR, and banks will still be able to refuse to make a payment if a customer does not have the funds to cover it, but any resulting fee for the customer must reflect the cost to the bank. It's pretty interesting stuff. So um, do you have any thoughts on this one? I'll I'll start with you, Laura.
2: I kind of think that the way it's worded indicates that the banks might not lose out here. I'm not 100% sure of that, but I think if it's all around financial inclusion and kind of making it easier for those that are experiencing financial difficulty to not have all these charges imposed on them where there may be a kind of unintended uh, fee, then that's great. But if it's kind of just another way of wording the same thing Mm -hmm. um, to kind of incur additional fees, I'm not 100% sure yeah. I'm sure I'll find out as I have an overdraft.
0: Yeah, well, it, it's it's the hidden fee that, yes. that uh-huh. um, the consumer yep. advocacy mm. is always trying mm-hmm. to get rid of. And it's yep. the feeling that the unarranged overdraft had a hidden fee that mm-hmm. wasn't always fair. And then the way it was priced, consumers didn't always understand. So I get why the FCA are pushing for consistency. And that makes sense. But the default to showing a customer an APR... I don't know that that's the best outcome for customers. Customers don't understand APRs and percentages. Well, you know, I'm, I'm overly generalizing, but Brandon, you know, from our research and from research that you'll have done, I'm, I'm sure as well, Scott, customers want things in pounds and pence, and they want to feel like they can understand it. So it's a real double-edged
1: sword, this one. Yeah, and I think if, if you're shown an APR in different APRs across different banks— um, what does that mean for the customer? What action can then the customer take? So if, if I put myself in a, in a position of customer is I'm running out of money, I need some overdraft, um, then how easy is it for me to go around different banks and shop for the best overdraft rate? And then how easy is it for me to switch to another bank if I want to get the overdraft with the other bank? So I think it's the step in the right direction by removing these, these hidden costs. But I think it's still a, it's a baby step to me in a way. Um there's, I think there's a really interesting quote there which says banks must do more to identify and help customers who are showing signs of financial strain or in financial difficulty. So I think that's where it's going to get really interesting is how do we encourage financial health? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that becomes a question of that. How does that compete directly against the bank's model of mm-hmm. overdraft and loans? And how do we do that sustainably and healthily for the customer? Mm-hmm. I think it,
3: you know definitely support the FCA's intention to make it simpler and easy to understand. Right, that that's got to be a good be good thing for everyone. But you're right; it's it's much more. You know, I I, I spend more of my time worrying about the customer experience and putting features into the apps and, and our channels that, that help them avoid these situations. You know, that's why our app's got projections in it. You, you know, it's it's about being forewarned. It's about being informed about the state of your account and where you're going and, you know, putting balance alerts in and being able to control when you get those alerts. And, and that, by giving them those sorts of tools, you, you actually you're acting to avoid the situation where you get any overdraft fees at all really that you know that, that's where you know certainly in, in the work that I do in the bank that's where we put all of our effort you know and I think that you know if we can you know in, in the unfortunate circumstance where someone does you know, have to pay fees for an overdraft if we can if we can make that simpler and make that less feel less of a surprise and then that's a good thing I suspect though to, to Laurel's point, the the amount of revenue
0: banks are generating will not go down it will just move um so some fee somebody else will pay for somebody else not paying if that makes sense because the over the hidden fees uh could be argued to have been something that uh, you know particularly prejudiced people who are not financially savvy. Yeah. And the provision of tools to help people who are not financially savvy is, is one good way to ensure that, that that's not the case. But the FCA has taken the other approach, which is to just kind of normalise how the fees work, which kind of make a lot of sense. And look, overdrafts are a big problem. About 19 million people use an arranged overdraft every year, and about 14 million people in the UK use an unarranged overdraft. And about 7.3 million people used both uh, in a given year. Um, firms made about 2.4 billion pounds in revenue from overdrafts in 2017. That's a major revenue line, even mm. if you split it across all of the major yeah. banks in the UK. I don't think they're going to want to lose that 2.4. No. So does right. it does it go from being like arranged overdrafts right now aren't actually that bad of a deal? Do they get worse to pay for the
1: fact that unarranged overdrafts aren't covering that gap anymore?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think just, just going back to Scott's point, it's How do you help them project and understand that, oh, you're about to, you might hit an overdraft limit or you might help hit the need to get an overdraft? And I think those services is where you build a customer relationship and build a brand and equity, brand loyalty with a customer. But then, equally, when they hit the point of they need an overdraft, how do you communicate that in a way that's the most human uh, and create the most human experience? Because at that point, they're probably going through a lot of anxiety, um, especially if they're recurring overdraft users that way. And I think it's building confidence for people, and
0: seeing yourself increasingly as the financial wellness platform. We're seeing this a lot in in the fintech space, where you know the micro savings apps are absolutely loved by customers because they get you addicted to saving, and they give you the dopamine hit of you have saved a little bit more, and it's it's that confidence building type of behaviours that can be good. And you know, once you are moving and changing the level of cost on the back end, you know, if you can radically transform your your cost side, then the amount of revenue you need to make to be be profitable comes comes down a little bit so you can afford to be more profitable without uh, having the same business practices um so here's hoping that this is a good thing for customers long term but i am genuinely a little bit concerned that this will just move move the money around rather than solve the underlying problem uh, all right our next story is the death of finn um story comes from bloomberg jp morgan have closed finn their digital only bank just a year after it launched um so the uh, JPM decided its consumer unit was actually better equipped to meet the younger customers' needs under the Chase brand after finding that millennial customers don't necessarily want a separate digital experience interesting clients stated i think monzo and revolut and n26 might disagree with you but anyway um, (laughs) clients stated getting notifications uh, that their accounts will be closed and funds will be transferred to chase checkings and savings accounts finn which they started offering nationally last june featured a digital app as well as some uh, access to a network of branches as part of the switch customers will have to download chase's mobile app to receive a new debit card but account numbers won't change um to be fair, our very own oracle, Sarah Kachansky, predicted this back in July of last year, um, and it was on Forbes. Uh, and the title of that article was, "Wife Finn by Chase Won't Spark a Banking Revolution. Uh, so not that uh, not that uh, Sarah can predict the future, but Sarah predicted the future here. Um, this is a common theme. Um, you know, are we going to see some of these fintech initiatives shut down more and more? You know, are, are we not seeing the numbers? What, what do we think
3: has gone on here? Uh, any, any thoughts from the your... room? It feels to me that it didn't make it different enough. Mm. You know, that... Y- in some ways, they probably cannibalized themselves because there was there was an existing proposition there and that people were very aware of and, and then they just kind of stuck with that because there wasn 't enough reason to move and in some ways, going back to our discussion around platforms, a lot of that comes from probably they were probably drafted to the same back end mm-hmm. you know when we when we built b. The trick really wasn't just to create a, a different brand on top of the same account. It was to add features, and that's why B has all the PFM stuff in it because it was a, it was a step change from mm-hmm. what was the Clydesdale bank accounts over the past. They were mm. sufficiently different. To to actually have a place in the market, very very separate from what you had already. And my feeling with this is they didn't make it different enough, and that's probably a lot because maybe, maybe they didn't think wild enough propositionally, but maybe they were also limited by what the back end could do for them. Uh, possibly both, right? And so if you haven't seen Fin by
0: Chase, um, it, you know, we we have videos of it on our Eleven of S Pulse platform. And and what surprised me was really you could you could do things like you had your list of transactions. And you could rate your transaction whether it made you happy or sad with emoji and like why? Mm. What, 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 why? What customer job does it actually ultimately solve? What what problem did it solve? I think, so there was that question. And they just weren't getting customer acquisition. And you can usually tell you've solved a customer problem when you start getting um, customer acquisition. And it's often the little things that really matter that the back end enables you to do, as you're saying, Scott. Um, One of the reasons people love challenger banks so much is that instant notification as soon as you've made a payment because it builds confidence. Oh, it works. It went through okay. You know, when you're buying something online, that little notification on your phone that says, boom, It's gone through, you're fine. That amount of money has gone to that merchant. Suddenly, all of that anxiety disappears. And I think people see things as, oh, well, I need an app as a channel and it needs to show the transaction list. They don't get the difference. Small, tiny, seemingly tiny features can have a massive impact on customer experience. No, absolutely. And I think
1: just to build on both your points, I didn't feel like Finn had a purpose. Or, or clear mission attached to it, right? It felt very much like um, Chime's happening, like alleys happening, Movin's happening, Simple's happening, therefore we create something else as well. Mm. Um, and there wasn't a re- very clear value proposition. Um, so... There was there wasn't a clear beach yet for me. So it, I think the way they branded it was as for millennials, and I think that's a very. It feels
0: like somebody thought up. We millennials aren't taking out enough new bank accounts. What do we do? We should do an app. Okay, what does it have? It has emoji. Millennials like emoji. Exactly,
1: exactly. And I think fintech is. I don't think fintech should be heavily correlated with millennials because I was recently in Portugal and when I was doing some wine tasting, a couple in the mid fifties pulled up a Monzo card and we started chatting. I was like, "Oh, you use Monzo? Like, how did you get into Monzo?" They're like, "Oh my." My son recommended it to me, but um, I was like, okay, so why do you use it? Oh, it's because I retire now and I want to make sure that when I go on trips. I'm not overspending on each trip because I want to go on X trips per year. So I think as long as you solve a customer job, it's not about which age group you target. And I think you shouldn't start with the age group because that's always the wrong answer, in my opinion.
2: I think the customer expectation is so high now that you can't really go into market with a, a product that doesn't have that real mission and vision anymore. You know, mm. it has to have that really amazing customer experience and and grab customers' love in a way that Monzo and Revolut have kind of captured that. Um, otherwise, you just can't. You simply can't compete.
0: It didn't used to be a requirement that you loved the product. Mm. It used to be enough that it, uh, it had a, an mm. app and it had a yeah. card and it, and it did payments. Mm-hmm. Like, what more does it need to do? That's what a banking product does. And you no, know, now we now you've got to have customers love you because there's competitors Absolutely. That, that, that are out there that have yeah. absolute evangelical zeal mm-hmm. from their customers.
2: Yeah, because you can get like a silver card or something, you know, <laughs> or, you know. You know, but I don't think it is the silver No, card, I know, you know what, what you mean. But I know. I know it's not. But, that. but it's the, not you that. can
0: only get somebody to love and want mm-hmm. that thing yep. so much mm-hmm. if there's. It's the subtle things that the product's doing. It's mm-hmm. often like um, we talk about um, the the cargo cult, which is like if I put on uh, a, a, an outfit for an uh, airplane uh, mm-hmm. pilot, an airline pilot. It doesn't mean I can fly a plane. No. And But I can put on the outfit and I can move the levers, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't want me flying your plane. And I think sometimes people look at challenges and go, oh, I understand what it is. And actually you don't. There's a lot more there than meets the eye, and that's the differentiator. And you
3: know all about this from an experience standpoint. Yeah, I think the hardest thing that, that, that banks fail to admit to themselves is that people don't really want to do banking. Mm. And and therefore you you have to approach it as, as a human problem and and approach it as one of, you're there, but facilitating financial life, really, more than anything else. And you're exactly right, you know, one of the, I spend more time reading psychology books now than I, than mm-hmm. I do reading tech books, because actually it's about the dopamine hits you mentioned, and all these little things, these little things that that, that surprise and delight people and get them hooked in that are, that are far more important. You know, no, no, one, no one wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to do some banking today, mm-hmm. you know, but they have to interact with the bank to facilitate the things they want to do. And, and it's, it's about focusing on that, and that, that's where the, the differentiation comes from. Maybe with Finn, that's where, where they can kind of feel, because you know putting emojis in and stuff like that wasn't solving a problem. It wasn't facilitating life. They, they believed it was something that people would want to go and do, and, and that is where you get it wrong, because people won't want to do that. What's different here is the uh, differentiation
0: between this and Marcus by Goldman. Um, Marcus by Goldman has gone and taken the market by storm. Uh, you know, it's really driven up customer numbers. They've got over a hundred thousand customers in the UK. Um, they've uh, issued, I think and billions of deposits in the US. I think it was, it was near 40-some-odd, uh, sorry, loans, uh, billion of loans books they built, and 5 billion in deposits. I mean, it's a really, really meaty book that they've built in no time at all. But to your point, their platform was greenfield, so they they were not held back by their platform in any way. I don't think we've seen the last of J.P. Morgan in this space. And actually... Conversely, I really respect them for, for killing this off and not keeping it alive and pretending it was massively successful when it wasn't. Uh, there's, they've really earned some um, kind of, hopefully, I think they've really earned some credibility and respect from the rest of the market for being like, actually, we're going to pull this. It hasn't worked. Really get the sense
1: they'll be back.
2: They've the, probably learned a lot as well from mm-hmm. the experience. Hopefully. Yeah.
1: Yeah and I think like JP Morgan as a whole, like they in the if you look at commercial investment banking, like they've done a lot of great things, right? Like Athena, inter interbank information network. So I think they're good at like they didn't know when to pull the plug. Mm-hmm. And I, I kudos to them for being brave enough to do that.
0: They've doubled down on some stuff that that has worked for them in other parts of the bank, clearly. And and I think Laurel, your point's a really good one. The learning is worth it. Actually, Fin has probably been really, really worthwhile in terms of what they learned. And you look at uh, Jamie Diamond's statements about, you know, the competitor is FinTech, not Big Tech. And he's really concerned about that and has made significant funding available internally to, to kind of go after that. Alrighty, next story comes from The Telegraph. Um, This is a a bank that appears to have beef with fintech. Um, So fintechs risk giving banks a bad name. Um, Shot to the heart and you're to blame, Uh, says uh, Barclay's boss. So Ashok Vaswani, Barclay's head of consumer banking and payments, said that concerns around the ability of startups to automatically monitor transactions are dangerous to the banking industry. At the end of the day, the whole system is just as strong as the weakest link. Mr. Vaswani also said that incidents where banking startups accidentally go offline due to technical issues are damaging the wider industry. Anytime a bank or fintech, for that matter, goes down, it's not good for the banking industry overall. You want the industry to have a reputation of being a reliable provider. It doesn't help if anything goes down. Mr. Vaswani pointed to Barclays' history as the reason why customers continue using the bank over the challenger banks. We've been doing this for 328 years. We're older than the bank of England. We're older than the United States of America. So we've been doing this for a long period of time and have withered through a lot of change.
2: I find this really interesting coming from them with all their kind of involvement in tech stars and everything else. So it's kind of on one one hand saying that we don't approve of startups and then on the other hand kind of really doing a lot of work in that space. So I think, you know, I, I think maybe this is just one sort of comment that has been kind of just mm-hmm. <laughs> taken and, and run with um, because I feel that they will collaborate with with startups. And um, I think to the point of the customer experience obviously has to be key here and everything has to be deployed and tested and, you know, everything has to be in place to, to try to avoid these situations that sometimes occur but when you're creating new products and services you know there there are going to be issues and you know if you can limit the downtime to as little as possible then that's that's great but we've seen it with the challengers where they do have an an outage and it does come back online and everything's good and you know but can it really be prevented (laughs) i'm I'm not sure about that
3: a couple of things strike me about this i think Firstly, you know, he's, he's very narrow in because in you know, he mentions automatically monitoring transactions. Well, who says that doesn't happen? And, mm-hmm. and, and who says it can't happen? Well,
0: that, that felt like a shot across the bow to Revolut and N26 directly, who've been, you know, N26 have, uh, have been called out by Barfin for not having automated monitoring in place that was effective. And as a result, Barfin have instructed N26 to hire humans to do the job, which is a really interesting instruction from the regulator. Again, I think the solution to the problem is not the same as the problem existing. Um, and, of course, uh, there's been some controversy about uh, whether or not Revolut had an active um, uh, transaction monitoring service during a period of time uh, sort of 18 months ago whilst they were changing between systems. So
3: my sense was that that's what he was, he was kind of talking about. It could be, but I think the other thing is that, um, you know, in terms of failures and, and you know, things being you know uptime and everything else, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people's cloud strategies are going to put a lot of their kit in big banks in the same, in exactly the same clouds as a lot of the fintech guys. So they're going to, you know, we saw it a couple of weeks ago with the Google Cloud going down. Right, lots of things go.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, and um, Facebook's house, been
0: down a bunch this year. Yeah, um, in my house
3: it was a horror because Snapchat went and it was like the world had ended. Yeah, but um, so you know, I think that you can't, you can't all converge on the same cloud and then, and then try and claim that somehow they're more reliable. I think less, be, less reliable than you are. I think to be fair to Asher, what he actually said in
0: the headline aren't strictly the same yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, I, I really do feel like journos are trying to stir up the beef, mm. especially yeah. the Telegraph seems to really have it in for fintech at the moment, given uh, which, which segment of the market they speak to. That wouldn't surprise me. Um, but to his actual point, is the age of a bank relevant to its competency or reason for customer loyalty?
2: I think that's a crazy thing to say, really. That something three hundred and twenty-eight years old is is completely relevant today. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Uh,
1: yeah, as I, a concept, I'm going to be the best for the customers because look how old I am.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: I think age does have a does have a play um, in customer loyalty. Who I, with? Yeah. Who with? And I think in in what country? So there's a really famous psychologist or ethnographer called um, uh, last name's Hofstede from from Netherlands, and he did a cultural dimension that was his what it was most famous for. And I think some culture has a higher uncertainty avoidance uh, metric. Um, whereas, uh, like, especially in Asia, they like, um, like trusted brand, secure brand, security plays a high role, whereas other cultures um, are more risk takers. Um, so I think...
2: I guess Alipay is like not 300 years old, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. got a billion users, so... For sure,
1: I know, uh, point taken. But yeah. I think like there, I think it, the culture does play a strong role in how how big of an effect the age of a bank has, right? Or how well
0: the culture. Or ethnography, so who are you and what do you look for from your products? Because if I'm 70-something and I liked cash and I liked people and I don't trust these newfangled things because I don't feel confident with it, then a bank that's there that I've trusted since I was young can give me real comfort and I I trust them and I go to the branch and I I feel that sense. And speaking to that customer base, I can completely understand it. Um, But, you know, and, and I think the broader point of, it's really, really important that these systems have uptime. If you're Trying to make get paid, and you're waiting for payday, and you need to pay the bills, and you're hungry. Then getting paid on time is super important, super critical to you. So banking is an absolutely vital service. So I think to be fair to Ashok, uh, Barclays are trying to do a lot in fintech. They yeah. are doing a lot to, yeah. to support this. I do think the um, the messaging could probably be a little bit tweaked if 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 I were them. But um, you know the the fintechs have definitely had some outages, but a cloud platform could actually be uh, a way forward for some of this most of the outages if you look at them actually come from one set of uh, c- uh payments providers so gps has been sort of holed up a few times as being the one that had the outages and took all the fintechs down um but visa had an outage like this is a curse on all of your houses it's it's not a case on uh, a curse on any one particular one i just think maybe uh this was a broad-ranging interview in which they were hoping to talk about other things and the journal has gone off on, on you know trying to get this beef so um, um, hopefully people do notice the other points that Ashok made in that article and the good things that Barclays are doing. Yeah. All right, uh, it's time for a quick break. This deal sets apart our age with a brighter future. We'll
1: we will leave the Europe. EU. Uh, clearly the Liverpool. pressure Liverpool. is beginning. British, 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 British jobs. On the office of the Brexit. EU and the Brexit. By Brexit. The more so you hear about
2: Brexit, Brexit. 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 Brexit, the less clear it all to be. Brexit. 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 When everyone else is shouting listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com.
3: Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.Cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey
0: today with Finastra. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Uh, We are hiring right now, so please do check out 11fs.com forward slash careers to find your new dream job. Uh, We have open roles in consulting, product design, and tech. Uh, We've got research and benchmarking, and of course, uh, we are building out our foundry platform. So if you want to build a core banking system and really remake banking with a client who's super fun to work with, then check out 11fs.com forward slash careers. We can really change this industry. Uh, All right, let's get on with the show. Um, the next story is about Brex, B-R-E-X, not Brexit, but Brex. Um, they have hit a two point six billion dollar valuation with new cash from Kleiner Perkins. So, just a reminder, Brex are corporate cards tailored for startups. Um, they released, uh, they have credit cards made specifically for e-commerce companies, um, and they've also launched recently a rewards program for its customers, announcing uh, you know kind of cards made specifically for science companies. So they're going after these niches. And they're making payments cards that really, really work. Um, so Kleiner Perkins led the round uh, alongside uh, Mary Meeker directly. Um, and existing investors, DST Global, IVP and Y Combinator also participated. So they closed $100 million in a Series C at a valuation of $2.6 billion. These guys have been growing rapidly. Check out this history. In March Two thousand and seventeen they graduated from Y Combinator in April two thousand and seventeen they got a six point five million series A at a twenty five valuation it, a year later in April two thousand and eighteen they raised fifty million at a two hundred twenty valuation in october two thousand and eighteen they raised a further one hundred and twenty five million at a one point one valuation and now they just raised another hundred million at a two point six This is a huge um, thoughts on thoughts on the the this st-
2: I just think it's un- incredible and and kind of unprecedented their their growth and you know what they're what they're managing to achieve. So I, I guess it's it, they're still only twenty twenty three years old as well. Mm-hmm. I think so. It's just. Um, I went to YC not <laughs> to visit the place. I hope some of that uh, type of scaling would drop off on me. So um, yeah, no, I think I think it's amazing. But I guess they have the right type of investors that can help them accelerate their growth. And that's kind of what it comes to. If you're gonna go into an accelerator programme, come out the other end with a Kleiner Perkins as your investor, your DST you're kind of, as well. Yeah, um, exactly. You're in a really good position. So I think, you know, they're obviously creating a product that people love. They're buying it, so
3: yeah, you can't. There's no, there's no replacement for traction in that kind of market. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what the VCs are going to love if Mm -hmm. they just, they just see people piling in and going and growing. Then they're going, they're going to keep investing in it. I think the interesting thing for me is that you know, obviously, from a from a digital onboarding perspective, clearly picking off niches is mm-hmm. something that works really well because mm-hmm. I think what it allows them to do is to build very frictionless experiences. And you see this consistently though. Revolut starts as the best
0: travel card in the mm-hmm. world and becomes a lot more. Monzo yeah. becomes a prepaid card that's the mm-hmm. everyday spend card. Mm-hmm. It's the playbook and it works and these guys are, are doing it time and time again at Brex. What's really interesting is uh, there's been a lot of people trying to do the uh, sort of uh, spend control card for startups and the purchasing card and the co- like. Corporate cards suck. They're so bad. They're so bad and so there's so much opportunity to improve it it doesn't surprise me that this is doing quite so well but then you think about the specific problems that these industries have you think about things like the film industry the science industries they're all buying different types of products have different approval routes have different workflows and stuff so if these guys can take out the niches and become a different way of buying things and purchasing things you could finally get rid of accounts payable and accounts receivable you could get out rid of all of the silly invoices and paper that goes backwards
3: and forwards no, you can, you can see that with their e-commerce offering it's very much they understand the nature of cash flow in those businesses mm-hmm. and they've tuned the product to match that and and that's why it's very popular because it's not just like a general purpose thing that may or may not work for you it's very much tuned to how your business is going to run.
2: And I guess tied into the sector kind of how that sector is operating in terms of all the events and so on the partnerships and loyalty and rewards is kind of a big part of that. too. All
0: right. We're going to keep an eye on Brex. I'm sure they'll be doing a lot more and um, mm. certainly some pedigree. I mean, if you wanted the, uh, the 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 checklist of things that get funded, XY Combinator, yep. backed by Peter T, uh-huh. Stanford Dropouts, backed yep. by Paul Graham. Amazing. Um, and and it, a lot of it is pedigree and momentum, but a lot of it is team at, at this phase. And they seem to be executing. Um, I, I think if I were looking, if I was in an organization and I had a corporate card program, I'd be really, really thinking about how do I get out
1: in front of this? um, Because I think we're going to see a lot more of it. Also, What I really like about Brex is their rewards program as well. So it's quite tailored to the the audience, right? So Mm -hmm. for startups that you get certain AWS AWS credits, so it's not just any corporate cards, the corporate cards that's completely tailored to your industry.
3: It'd be fun to see how the brand does in the UK at some point as well. Indeed.
0: Well, there are um, card programs like it, There's Spendesk and a few others in Europe that are that are having a good go at this. Um, but you know, the the, uh, the corporate card market and corporate, and especially for startups, is less than one percent done. It's like zero point one percent done. There's <laughs> so much to do. All right. Um, if you want to learn more about Brex, uh, Sam Mall spoke to the Brex CEO and uh, founder uh, Enrique. Uh, During New York Fintech Week, listen back to episode one of our Fintech Insider USA series. So go back to your podcast client, scroll back a little way. Uh, Episode one of Fintech Insider USA, it was about 10 10 episodes ago, um, and Breck's CEO and founder, Enrique de Bras, I don't know how to say his last name. Really, really interesting chat. Check it out. Uh, Already, uh, next story. Um, Story comes from Business Insider and UK startup fintech TrueLayer just won funding from China's Tencent and Singaporean wealth fund uh, Temasek. Um, So they're taking this investment, it's $35 million uh, which goes on Tuesday, fueling the company's expansion further into Europe and Asia. TrueLayer was founded in 2016 and they're a platform that provides open banking software that allows people to share or aggregate their financial information from different providers and of course this is set against the context of open banking and PSD2 which have really helped out companies like TrueLayer leveraging the APIs that have been made available by banks to integrate their services to customers. The company works uh, apparently, with tree previously received funding from Northzone, Anthemis, and Connect Ventures. Tencent
1: getting involved. This is uh, this looks like Asia expansion written all over it. Yeah. So if I if I look at it from from Tencent's angle, right? Um, Tencent to me is a is a platform business, and platform businesses always want to occupy at least or be part of a position that's quite foundational um, and more powerful in the stack, um, which ultimately means having access to business and customer data. Um, so for me. For Tencent's investment, it's about um, having access to an open banking stack and playing that really key role. So um, Tencent, I know um, earlier, was applying for trademarks in Australia. They were just announced as one of the new virtual banks in Hong Kong. And Trulayer, from their website, also says that that's probably two areas that they're going to go into as well. Um, So I think as Trulayer expands, what Tencent can now do is be part of a very Crucial part of that open banking stack, I'm gonna have access to that stack. Um, so I think for a, for a platform business, it makes really a key strategic sense to me.
3: Yeah, truly a quite an interesting company because they they've they've focused on just accessing the raw data mainly. You know that yeah. you know they do a little bit of tagging and, and that sort of thing, but it's it's more about just getting that getting that access to all the bank data and and, and getting it out. Through their APIs, you know, you know, when we we looked at a few things, when we we were putting aggregation in, into the B app. There was a few options. We ended up using a Scottish fintech called IDCO to do that. And from a bank's perspective, it's it's very useful. There's there's, there's nothing to be gained from a bank from building all the hooks out to all the other banks to do aggregation. So going through some sort of fintech intermediary is, is is a much better way to do it, which is why we did it. Um, but it's, it's interesting because a lot of that market is is going on to different aspects of that product, you know. So, you know, I know the guys at the ID core are looking at things like affordability because obviously they've got access to the data so they could, they can do a lot of things. But truly just seem to be sticking with the raw data provision, which I think is quite, quite an interesting choice. I wonder as well about
0: um, Tencent uh, as a sort of uh, an organisation with uh, WeChat and having the kind of massive payments infrastructure they've got. Is there something there about European entry the other way um, that pulling data into that. I don't know if it's uh, for tourists or travelers, it could be helpful. Is,
1: is there something there in the future? Yeah, I think having, having that access will definitely give them more options when it comes to the beachhead proposition when they mm. expand to different markets, right? So mm. I think in, in China, um, WeBank um, has been quite focused on both consumer and car loans. So um, Weili Dai uh, had about 251% CAGR between 15 and 17. Um, and and then they had an ROA about 2.17% when the industry was having like 0.92%. So I think in China, they're really excelling at that loan provision. Um, so, what I'll be interested to see, as you, as you mentioned, is when they expand to, let's say, Australia, to Hong Kong, to different markets. Um, how would that change your proposition? When you have a much higher population
0: of banked uh, kind of people with regulators that are open to open banking, like Australia, like Hong Kong, which are natural next steps for, for, for those platforms with a lot of crossover and a lot of migrant work. Really, really interesting. And, and to the point Scott made about uh, having this one layer with security, we actually talked to Plaid um, co-founder a couple of episodes ago on our Fintech Insider uh, show as well. And they were saying a similar thing that actually at first banks were really unsure about this fintech that could access things. But what they realized was, A, it's convenient, and B, it's pretty secure. Rather than having a many-to-many, all the banks are connecting to each other and lots of places where things can go wrong, I've got this one point of security that I can start manage a lot more effectively.
2: I agree. And, and I think the other kind of thing around Tencent doing something like this is that they could probably, well, I think the, the concept for them might be around providing additional services through their own platform. So a big focus on how can they add value to their own customers and kind of you know, create new products and services using new technologies. Mm. Yeah,
0: going to be one to watch. All right, next story. Um, Amazon are apparently crediting the underbanked. The uh, story comes from CNBC. They're launching a credit card for the underbanked with bad credit. Uh, so they partnered with publicly traded bank Synchrony Financial to launch the Amazon Credit Builder, a program that lends to shoppers with no credit history or bad credit who would otherwise be exempt from Amazon's loyalty cards. The card has the same perks, like 5% cash back on purchases, that come with the popular Amazon store card, which Synchrony also powers. These reward cards incentivize shoppers to use Amazon instead of alternatives uh, to drive loyalty with its customer base. The program uses uh, financial literacy tools and tips to learn about building credit and borrowers can eventually graduate to an unsecured Amazon credit card once they've demonstrated they can pay back the loans. Um, the card, uh, the new card application sits directly next to the other Amazon cards and if a customer doesn't get approved for an Amazon credit card they'll be prompted for this new offering if they want to apply for the credit builder instead. So pretty interesting stuff. Um, there's, uh, the Synchrony EVP says this is a large part of the population that weren't able to build from synchrony's perspective. This is this is massively uh, massive distribution. Um, Is this finally Amazon getting into fintech, or is this is this still just sort of like an affiliate card?
2: I think it's on the fringes. But you, I guess the 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 ultimate is for them to start for the likes of Amazon to start doing things more and more. (laughs) As they start to kind of move into other areas like, you know, physical stores and all sorts of other things. So, yeah, I think it's just the start of things to come.
3: I think it's good that, you know, getting, people get this sort of assistance, right? Because I think because it's a builder, it gets them, if they're being educated and, and they get into a better position from the credit, that, that's a good thing. I think obviously from Amazon's point of view, you could argue that it's the one part of the population that wasn't buying on Amazon, therefore they were solving that problem. You know that you know if it gives them an opportunity to access, you know more more of more of the population to, to get transactions through through their door. So I think it, it works. I think it's a mutually good thing. I think it works for Amazon and it gives them access to more customers. But I think it's good for the customers as well because it gives them, you know, they get to benefit from buying things on Amazon and, the, and, and other places. You got to watch out there for being sort of treated like a
0: store card or being treated. Cause synchrony issue, um, co-branded cards with Lowe's, Sam's Club. PayPal, Banana Republic, and uh, other companies. So this is like a store card plus plus. The APR is 28.2% and uh, people deposit $500 and then have a $500 credit limit that they now have to pay a 28% APR on. Like it, It's all a little bit weird. Um, so you get, yeah you deposit your 500 and then you've got another 500 over the top of it. You could see how somebody who's not already financially literate may end up in trouble with this. Um, so the real I think this succeeds or fails on how good the financial literacy
1: tools and support are around it. Mm. I think what's really interesting as well is the track record that Syncrity Financial has. So they bought around, I think, $7.6 worth of credit receivables from PayPal um, back in 2018. And they have a 10-year relationship with them to be exclusive for their co-branded credit card. So these guys have a lot of history and track record and experience of working with big um e commerce firms. So I think it would be really interesting to see how that Experience translates and how that like evolves as they work with Amazon as well. What's
0: interesting is they're not using all of the Amazon data, or at least maybe they are, but it, it doesn't appear from the articles. Like the data Amazon has about its shoppers and the credit scoring you could do as a result of uh, somebody's purchasing behavior, but also the things that you could do in the interests of the customer as a result of their purchasing behavior that would be good for their lives, that would be in their interests. Like da- with great data comes great responsibility. There's an absolute responsibility that if you get this product right, you can make a real difference. Mm-hmm. But if you get it wrong, you could really mess with some people. So what's the ultimate goal? Is it for more people to buy stuff from Amazon? Or is it for uh, more sustainable customers that will become good customers of Amazon in the longer term? And I hope it's that second thing. Alrighty, time for the and finally story. Are we ready? Uh, This week's and finally story, Banking and Big Macs. The story comes from Finextra. Spare bank to open Pilot Branch in a McDonald's outlet. Uh, So you can have your chicken and nuggets and uh, cash Um, So customers of Russia's spare banks will soon be able to do their banking with a side order of Big Mac and Fries following a collaboration deal agreed between the state-owned banking entity and the giant US burger chain. The two companies intend to partner in card acquiring and a number of other more innovative areas, including using technical systems to analyze data and Price. No, that's me editorializing. I don't know if they're analyzing price. Developing consumer behavior analysis systems, speeding up bank card payments, developing payroll for employees, and the opening of a pilot branch in the Bank of McDonald's outlet. Bank of McDonald's, are you loving this?
1: Not loving it. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, the first question I have is why, right? Um, I, I, I just can't imagine what type of customer research they went through to have them come to the, the conclusion that this is the right decision to make. Maybe there is some... Um, real hard data and, and a narrative behind it that makes a lot of sense um, but I, I feel like this is sort of similar to the Whopper coin that Burger King did mm-hmm. um, a few months back uh, in, in Russia as well like coincidentally we have but, weird um,
0: marketing gimmicks in Russia yeah. from large burger chains why <laughs> yeah um I mean, it's, it's an entertaining story to say. Who's this. Russia's head of marketing for burger chains? Because whoever they are, they're creative. I'll give them that. <laughs> maybe like, it's the
2: same agency. Yeah,
3: yeah.
0: maybe it could be.
3: Uh, um, there, there we go. go. I, but, but I think there's, there is a, an argument for saying that, you know, there's a good thing about taking the service to where people are. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think that maybe the, this is just one version of that, that, you know, to go back to what we said earlier on people don't really want to do banking but they probably do want to buy a McDonald's so therefore co-locating the two might might you know have some some use for people in some ways it's it's much like in the in the, in the digital space that I think you will see a lot more embedding. You will lots. You will see even. You know, you can see things now. You can make payments on WhatsApp and things like that. You know that you've got much more chance of getting engagement if you have your financial services mm. embedded in places where people want to be anyway. And whether that's physical in in a McDonald's or whether that's digital in in someone else's app, I think you see more and more of that because people people aren't going to choose to to go to to a branch. And you know, if you, know, if you look at the the branches that that we've opened in, in London and Manchester that you know they're, they're made to not look like branches because they're meant to be a lot funkier than that because they're meant to be more of a destination, and and I think that by by taking um, banking services into um, places where people want to go, then maybe people will engage with them more.
2: I think it's funny. It's like the Happy Meal for you know get them young. So. If you're going into a bank and you know how when you give your kid a bank account, you're going to get them at young. You know, if there's if there's some sort of sales mechanism like a Happy Meal, because all the kids want a Happy Meal, then you're going to get the bank account young. Right. So I don't know. Maybe there's something in that. So who knows? Who knows what their strategy is? But I think it's quite funny.
0: We, we've seen um that a lot of the challenger banks and now the high street banks in the UK now offer uh, the ability to use the post office exactly and, and in i rural like that communities. i just
2: yeah i like that it's easy simple
0: and so why not have other places where you can yeah. do the analog things Exactly. That, where branches are costing more everywhere and, more. and and actually the cost of running a branch for somebody to walk in once a day in some rural community is yeah. far yeah you know, it's it's unsustainable mm-hmm. and doesn't make yeah. some, sense you know, it
2: should be the pub m- <laughs> I'm joking uh, I was joking
0: I would love that like
2: if, <laughs> I, it, I agree then I, like then that.
0: I could really have um, cash on my fish and chips I could get
1: some perfect and, and that's actually what's happening in Hong Kong as well like when you go to 7-Elevens which is like the local convenience stores which is which is everywhere you can get cash up there as well yeah um, so that's it works sometimes.
2: Same I'm good. I'm good with McDonald's. It's
1: good. Do would they
0: <laughs> would they have an ATM where you can get out cash that has Ronald McDonald's face on it though? I hope so. Uh, and then would I get McDonald's tokens and whatever? I I think too?
2: you get a happy meal and a toy.
0: Yeah a Happy meal and a toy just for taking my paying-in book and getting my deposit sorted. I'd save up for that. I'm getting, Is anybody else getting hungry? <laughs> well, this podcast is not sponsored by any Me. food brand, by the way. Uh, all right, and that And we wraps don't
2: up. Inzo- endorse McDonald's either.
0: No. <laughs> there are
2: other burger
0: chains. <laughs> <laughs> and there are other banks too. <laughs> and there are other podcasts, but stay with us. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Laurel?
2: Oh, sustainably.co. And we're launching uh, connected to all of the UK's challenger and mainstream banks uh, on the 1st of July. And what
0: does Sustainably do?
2: So we are a fintech for social good. We use open banking to make it easy for individuals to have a positive impact every day. So you can round up your spare change and give in many different frictionless ways without giving out your personal data to causes you care about every time you shop and lots of other interesting ways
0: good stuff I like the sound of that a lot and
3: Scott how about yourself? me or my employer all of the above <laughs> so obviously you can find it, but Clyde's um, like the New Yorkshire Bank and, and, and Virgin Money on cybg.com there's, if you want to find out about me, I don't, can't imagine why you would, but you can go to scotladell.com and, and make your way through 13 years of nonsense that lives there. Yeah,
1: fantastic. 13
0: years of nonsense sounds like a train right home to me. <laughs> uh, how about yourself, Brandon?
1: Uh, you can find me on Twitter, on BKT Chung. And if you're interested in more Jobs Be Done stuff, um, we have written and published a report on personal finance management. So just search personal finance management, Jobs Be Done, 11FS on Google. Then Bob's your uncle indeed Bob
0: is that uncle um, do do check out that report though a lot of love uh, went into putting that together as for me you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter uh, or you can just email me Simon at 11FS.com what did you think of today's stories let us know on Twitter uh, at Fintech Insiders or email podcast at 11FS.com and do not forget if you love the show leave us a review uh, we love reading those reviews and tell your friends to check out Fintech Insider anybody in your office anybody you work with or anybody who might just be a secret fintech now that they're out there um find us on twitter instagram youtube and periscope for more content including fintech insider on air and our new show uh, pulse home screen where we sit down with designers of products and ask them why did you design that thing and what, what was the user journey really good stuff so do check it out and you get the dulcet tones of mr jim safford as well lucky lucky things Alrighty, thank you very much for listening goodbye for now